Running Light Ministry podcast is brought to you by listeners like you. You can support these podcasts by making a gift to the ministries at runninglight.org. We're going to do a series on sex passages in the book of Corinthians. And I thought this would be cool. But I want to read something from Ray Tannehill's Sex in History book, which I found really fascinating, by the way. She has a section on the Christian church, and it's pretty interesting. I like, this is uh, the subtitles, The Celibate View of Sex. It says, I should like, said St. Jerome in the 4th century, every man to take a wife who cannot manage to sleep alone because he gets frightened at night. (laughs) (laughs) That's a good reason to get married. That's why I got married. You could already see the way they're they're going with this, right? See, they didn't have nightlights back in the 4th century, so a spouse was a good substitute. That's right. So <laughs> Jerome was one of the most redoubtable and, from the safe distance, stimulating of church fathers, had the utmost contempt for matrimony, and in this he was not alone. It was not wholly a matter of personal preference. Missionary faiths rarely make the mistake of undervaluing what seems likely to bring in converts and sexual continence was an important element to the asceticism that attracted the sated peoples of the Roman world to Christianity. And um, so she has some great quotes in here. Um, So lust and sex were integral to the doctrine of original sin. That was an integral part of original sin. Lust and sex. This is great. This is under her subtitle, Secular Matrimony. Marry if you must, said the church fathers grudgingly to the laity, and went on to describe the joys of matrimony in terms that any Greek or Roman would instantly have recognized. Children are, quote, a most bitter pleasure, unquote, and wives, by definition, weak and frail, slow of understanding, emotionally unstable, light-minded, deceitful, and wholly untrustworthy as far as public affairs were concerned. Marital sex was a grievous hazard, although John Christendom and Methodius conceded that as long as a husband and wife rationed their embraces... Wedded bliss need not be an insuperable obstacle to salvation. (laughs) Clement of Alexandria was even prepared to admit that it might have positive value, (laughs) since by offering greater temptation, it also offered greater opportunities for (laughs) self-discipline. On the whole, the church saw marriage as a series of concessions to human weakness, to the need for companionship sex and children, and it did what it could to undermine all three. (laughs) Isn't that funny? It is. So it says, From the 7th until the 12th century, there was a continuing discussion about what marriage actually was. Was it a moral contract authenticated by the ceremony itself, or did it have to be confirmed by sexual intercourse? The final judgment was that what makes a marriage is actually not sexual intercourse, but it actually was just the contract itself. And it's interesting also to note that this is really cool, that in fact the church fathers viewed even the production of children with some dubity, for they were not sure that the Old Testament command, quote, to be fruitful and multiply, 
was still valid. Hmm. Its original purpose had been to establish a line from the Messiah's uh, that the Messiah might arise. Now that the Messiah had arisen, <laughs> salvation no longer seemed to depend on procreation. <laughs> Isn't that funny? Yeah. Yeah. So uh, marital chastity became a popular subject. So it's interesting to read some of this just because you kind of go, wow, you know, these, these guys were really against sex. <laughs> Put it lightly. Yeah, and a lot of our podcasts have been on subjects where we've talked a lot about how the Christian church has always had a real damper on sexual issues. Talking about it, even the theology of sex hasn't been discussed much. People don't see the connections. You know, they can't see like how the Holy Spirit works in us in an intimate way and relating that to actual sex. So are the Bible being uh, allegorous entirely about God connecting with us hmm. and and how we see a picture of that in marital relationship? Hmm. So there's, there's this giant disconnect and people wonder why. But I think when you read just a little bit of that chapter, you kind of go, whoa, I think I see why. Yeah. You know, you have hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years of incredibly poor teaching on this subject. Right. So getting into 1 Corinthians is going to be fun because there's a lot, I think, that is taken or, or maybe not taken so seriously amongst the church fathers in these passages. Hmm. For some reason, these passages in 1 Corinthians 6 and 1 Corinthians 7 um, have gotten reinterpreted or, um, I don't know, aligned to fit some cultural um, view that they had yeah. um, back then. That's I was actually just reading C.S. Lewis yesterday, and he, has, he had this great quote where he said, um, the devil always works in pairs. One sin being in the deficiency of virtue and the other sin being in its excess. Yeah. And he says, when the devil scares you away from one, he chases you into the other. So uh, sexual temperance, like what uh, traditionally has been called sexual temperance, is a virtue. The ability to be able to have self-control in your sexuality and to be able to utilize it within the context and confines that God has spelled out for us within the Bible. That's a good thing too little sexual temperance and you are Hugh Hefner, right? You run around having sex with everybody, you know, using your sexuality however you want. Too much sexual temperance is also damaging though. And that could lead to the type of ascetic way of thinking that you just listed off from the early church fathers where they're trying to run away from the licentiousness of the Roman Empire. And I like how she worded that that people coming from this really sexually liberated culture coming into the church and understanding the sexual temperance movement uh, because essentially they got, I hate to put it this way, but they got kind of sexed out. And that's what happens to some cultures, you know, like I think about uh, Japanese culture and things like that, where if you, if you take any and all limits off of sexuality and just say, run wild, it becomes so saturated that people kind of get sick of it. And it's easy for them to, like C.S. Lewis's analogy, Satan's chasing you away from one, 
but he's chasing you right into another, right? He's, he's not allowing you to find that middle, that solid middle. And it's also important to understand when we get into 1 Corinthians 7, it can sound like Paul is giving an allowance for sexuality. That's what it can sound like. But you have to remember that the Corinthian church was a church that was on the side of licentiousness. So when Paul speaks about pleasure to the Corinthian church, he mainly speaks in a way of warning, warning about the potentiality for pleasure to put us into bondage and to move us into licentiousness. And he speaks an awful lot about that in this book. It's not that he doesn't talk about the glories of sex. It's that the majority of what he's trying to get across in this book is the warnings of sexual promiscuity because of the pleasures of it. If you get into other books, though, let's say 1 Timothy, where he's dealing with the church of Ephesus, you see a much different emphasis from Paul. He's no longer emphasizing the dangers of sensual pleasures. He's actually glorifying sensual pleasures and talking about how these can be brought under submission of Christ and be used to glorify him. So we get the passage of 1 Timothy 4, verse 4. For we know that the creation is good, and it's made to be what? Enjoyed, right? For earthly pleasures are set aside or made holy by the word of God in prayer. So we have this idea where he's dealing, when he's dealing with an ascetic culture, he talks about the beauties of pleasure. When he's talking to a licentious culture, he has to warn against the uh, abuses of pleasure. Cool. So 1 Corinthians 6. Um, a big passage um, for sure. And we can read probably starting maybe at verse 12. Mm-hmm. So I'll read from my, my new favorite living Bible because it's so cool. God, it's so cool. And we'll see. And you got your King James. New that, King doesn't, James right? that doesn't look very new. <laughs> I know. Totally. It's not that new. It looks actually, pretty I old. I found man. it in the storage. Yeah. <laughs> so. But I, I certainly love the translation. I can do anything I want to if Christ has not said no, but some of the things um, aren't good for me, even if I am allowed to do them. I'll refuse to if I think they might get such a grip on me that I can't easily stop when I want to. That, so that sounds a lot like the C.S. Lewis idea, right? Right. Kind of that balance, that temperance. Right. Um, the virtue of temperance. Yeah. You could say. For instance, take the matter of eating. God has given us an appetite for food and stomach to digest it. But it doesn't mean that we should eat more than we need. Don't think of eating as important because someday God will do away with both stomachs and food. So it seems like his point there is just simply that the idea of food for the stomach and stomach for food. We have an appetite and we get it met by food. But don't get too carried away with that. Right. And it's interesting because the ascetics even thought that food was evil. That eating was like a concession. Like you have to eat to live. But don't be pleased by your food. <laughs> like it's make sure that you... Over excitement. Right. Don't don't like your food. Don't and season was, it. And that was a big, a big thing it seems like in the early church. Yeah. Uh, for hundreds of years. It was the idea of that you can't really get too excited. Right. Like any kind of pleasure. I was reading, uh, I think I was telling you the other day, I was reading St. Augustine's ideas on Adam and Eve in the fall. Yeah. And and I found it funny that 
he he believed that the fall had something to do with sexuality because they covered their genitalia. Yeah. And that after the fall, their genitalias cannot be controlled. Yeah. So it made me have this weird picture in my mind. <laughs> it's a very odd way to look at that event, you know. But um, it's interesting because uh, the idea of pleasure, it's, it's such a hard sell for the ascetic. Because when you go to the Bible, all you have to ask about is we're obviously in a fallen situation right now. But what everyone would agree with in Christianity is that, A, it wasn't always that way, and B, it's going to go back to God's original intent. And when you look at God's original intent, does it seem like a pleasureless existence? Is that the kind of picture we get? And the answer is no. When you get to heaven, heaven is so is described as being so aesthetically pleasing that even the pavement is beautiful. Right. When if something's that pretty, when you look at like when I go when I think about like a cityscape like New York City or San Francisco or or Los Angeles, and those are very beautiful. Like you could look at them and be like, wow, like the craftsmanship, the architecture, it's actually really amazing. But the one part of it that no one's going to look at with awe is the pavement. <laughs> They're not going to look at the at the asphalt, the grimy asphalt, and be like how beautiful it is. When John is describing heaven, he's like, heaven is going to be so unbelievably pleasurable, unbelievably pleasurable, that every aspect of it will be pleasing. The pavement itself will be pleasing to the eyes. The fruit from the tree of life will be uh, bring forth new and different tastes all the time. You see an amazing community of mankind together. You even see Adam delighting Uh, within his work in the Garden of Eden, delighting in the garden that God placed him in. And they were naked and unashamed, and Adam seemed to like the fact that his wife was naked. He seemed to be really excited about her body. Uh, And then you obviously have in the book of Revelation, what is the depiction or the state that all the Christians seem to be in? They seem to be in a state of constant worship. And C.S. Lewis points out in his book, excellent book, Reflection on the Psalms, he points out that genuine worship comes only from genuine ecstasy. Meaning if I'm not actually pleased with something, I can't actually praise it. If I am looking at my food and I'm eating like a unsalted, unleavened cracker, I'm not going to be like, this is amazing. You know, I'm not going to worship. I'm only going to worship. I'm only going to spontaneously praise something if I'm also enjoying it. So we see in heaven people are in a constant state of incredible ecstasy. Um, Ecstasy that Paul seems to suggest far outweighs anything we've ever experienced on this planet. Um, In numerous different passages he talks about that. So uh, it's it's a very hard sell for the ascetic uh, to say that beauty and pleasure are inherently bad yeah. when heaven seems to be saturated in it. And on that note, I, w- I just want to read a little bit of Augustine's kind of this idea that he had. Yeah, It says, because obviously this probably influenced uh, the last thousand years. <laughs> yeah, these guys influenced a lot. Yeah, it was Augustine who epitomized a general feeling among the church fathers that the act of intercourse was fundamentally disgusting. Right. So that's something 
always to remember. A lot of people still have that hang up today in church. Yeah. Where when they think of sexual intercourse, they're like, ooh, that's yucky. <laughs> it's like in their view, it's kind of like taking medicine. Yeah. It's gross, it's disgusting, but you gotta do it. You right. know, like you have to do it, otherwise the species would die out, you know. Arnobius called it filthy and degrading. <clears throat> Methodius, unseemingly. Jerome, unclean. Tertullian, shameful. Yeah. Ambrose, a defilement. In fact, there was an unstated consensus that God ought to have invented a better way of dealing with the problem of procreation. <laughs> August, uh, 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 Augustine, retrospectively offended, uh, offended by his own experiences, set his mind to the problem and concluded that the fault lay not with God but with Adam and Eve. <laughs> it's a good line because it kind of shows that Augustine had a background. Yeah. And his background was Rome, and his background was his own um, life. Yeah. And and so I like that statement because, you know, he was kind of in this quandary of, like, sex is so bad. It was so bad for me. I misused it. You know, food for the stomach and stomach for food. My body's for sex, and I used it for sex, and I kind of abused it. And now I'm tormented by it. And so God couldn't really be into sex um so there must be an issue and the issue obviously is with us yeah and so it says according to this reconstruction the man and the woman made by god were at first creatures of the mind wholly in control of their bodies perish the thought that there should have been any unregulated excitement or any need to resist desire sex in the garden of eden if it had ever taken place, would have been cool and rare, rare field with no eroticism. Right. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Any thoughts on that? Yeah, no, it's interesting because I've read, I'm almost done. I'm about three quarters finished. It's a lengthy book called The City of God, which is kind of St. Augustine's seminal work. It's like the, the, the book that he's most known for. And it's, it's very loaded down and it's very overbearing. But one of the main points that he's making throughout the book and why it's so influential even to this day, how it's influenced a lot of people, especially guys like John Piper would be a modern day guy who was really influenced by Augustine as well as C.S. Lewis, is that he made the point that God is the most pleasurable being in the universe and that if we want to lead our best lives, we have to submit our pleasures to God and find our ultimate satisfaction and bliss in him. Now, the interesting thing about that argument, though, is it seems that in the book, he's just saying it in those ways. But it seems that he came to, from his background with sexuality, um, what you can see in Augustine's life is that it's not that he was repulsed by sex. He was enamored by sex. Uh, there's a really famous line from uh, Augustine where he said he was praying to God, God, grant me chastity. But he said, in the back of my mind, I always stayed, said, but not yet, <laughs> right? Where he loved sex. He was really enamored by sex. And I think that he had such difficulty, if I'm going to just read into his life a little bit and take a, a stance on why he's saying what he's saying, I think he was so enamored by sex and I think he was so incapable of controlling himself 
that he cut himself off to the sensuality of sex, period. He was like, I'm done. Figuratively and literally, he did that to himself. And he eventually, as his mind started going, instead of seeing sex as something that you could submit to God, he saw it as being so powerful that you could never do that. Um, so in other words, he's taking his frailties and he's projecting them onto the Bible. And he's now justifying his tenuous position because he doesn't know how to do it. Another famous quote from Augustine is, perfect abstinence is far simpler than perfect temperance. So in other words, even he knew that it's way easier just to like not engage sexually at all than it would be to engage sexually and learn how to have self-control in that area. Mm. Um, so it's, it's interesting to see his decline in his theological understanding of this issue and how his, his like hangups basically crawled their way into his interpretation. Yeah, he was almost tormented by eroticism. Right. Where, <clears throat> where he couldn't uh, see the idea of a man and a woman enjoying sexual uh, relationships, you know, together, um, sexuality together. He couldn't equate that with something in the will of God. Right. Like somehow the erotic aspect. So even even it seems like his views of, you know, what was sex life before, you know, the fall? Well, it was probably just like he like these words. Right. Just kind of, you know, functional. Right. You know, empty. Yeah. Like uh, without without any pleasure or bliss. It was just kind of like something you did, like brushing your hair. Right. Or shaving. You know, you, you did it, but it didn't. There was no enticement. Yeah. To, to vice. Right. They and didn't look at each idea. other and, you know. Get excited. Uh, get excited. I don't know how that would have worked. But uh, and it says, it says, no uncontrollable responses, certainly no ecstasy. A matter simply of utilizing the mechanical equipment designed by the creator to fulfill with deliberation and a kind of grave appreciation the requirement of productive process. But then Adam and Eve fell into sin and became conscious of new and selfish impulses, hmm. which Augustine called concupiscence. Yeah, concupiscence. Is that what that <laughs> word is? I don't know. I've never heard that word. Concupiscence or lust. Yeah. I like lust better. <laughs> That's easier. Yeah. So over which he had no control. The immediate effect was their lapse from grace was that they became aware and ashamed of their nakedness. And Augustine interpreted this as a meaning that their own disobedience to the Creator was reflected in sudden and willful activity on the part of their genitals. Hmm. And you could kind of see, so you'd have to read this passage with one eye closed, but you can kind of see how they would use this passage to justify that position in the metaphor that Paul uses. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things, I will not be brought under the power of any. So if you look at sex as being so powerful that it will by necessity and nature bring you under its power, then you have to look at it in that context of, well, you, it's, it's lawful, you can do it, but it's dangerous. And that's the idea. And again, Paul is saying that. He is saying that sexual pleasure is pretty amazing and therefore it does have potentiality 
to draw you away from Christ. Absolutely. But the way that you fight that is not by saying, therefore, the pleasure in sex is the problem. No, the pleasure in sex is not the problem. The problem is, is us glorifying the pleasure in sex above the creator. And that's his whole point of saying the body is not made for sexual morality or as your Bible rendered it, the idea of like we have an appetite, but God, but the appetite will eventually be done away with by God. In other words, yeah, you have sexual appetites and there's sensuality to the creation that God has made. And those are good things, but they're not the ultimate thing to go after. There is a, as we put it, better pleasure that's contained within the human condition. And yes, even in sexuality, because the rest of the passage, Paul teaches us how to introduce God's glory into the marital bed and why that's such an important thing to understand. So I I could see why they would read it that way. But again, that's their frailties moving into their interpretation as opposed to them simply trying to read the Bible as it was intended. It would be absolutely untenable for someone to carry Augustine or Tertullian or Jerome. It would be absolutely untenable for any anyone ever to take that perspective and read the Song of Solomon and feel like you're justified in thinking that way. There's no way you're going to read the Song of Solomon and be like, yeah, there's no ecstasy going on here. There's no arousal. There's no excitement. You know, how, how could you possibly read that book and come away with these conclusions? But you can see how their minds are working. I mean, totally. Yeah. They're going, man, that pleasure is totally bad. Yeah. And so it must have been uh, pre-fall there was no pleasure. Right. And then after after the fall, that's when the pleasure took place. That's when eroticism took place. Their genitalia, they covered them. Yeah. Why? Because they couldn't control them. Yeah. <laughs> All of a sudden, it was like uncontrollable genitalia. <laughs> Sounds like an old B movie or something. <laughs> and I always think about this like as a parent. When you're, dis- when you're training your children um, and disciplining them, you're not trying to introduce them into a world devoid of pleasure. You're trying to introduce them into deeper, richer pleasures. So for instance, when you're talking to your kid about something like dessert, the intent of the parent, of a good parent, is not to say, I never want my child to ever enjoy anything sweet and delicious. The intent is, I want them to enjoy sweet and delicious things in the most successful and pleasure-inducing context available to them. What is that context? After a meal. Because if all they do is eat sweets, first of all, it's going to tank their health. It's going to create uh, a bunch of medical problems. And it's actually not going to be that pleasurable because you're overdoing a good thing and you don't have a variety of flavors. Uh, that's why nobody sits around and just eats a bucket of sugar, right? There has to be other uh, flavors playing off of one another to be really uh, genuinely satisfying. So you're, you're not trying to steal pleasure from your child. You're trying to maximize it. And the same thing is happening with Paul. He's not saying sex is bad because it's pleasurable. He's saying there is a danger associated with the pleasure. Therefore, let me teach you how to control it. And that's the intent of this passage. Yeah, it's just like anything that's pleasurable can go that direction right you like to run well great but when you run 50 miles a day your body's gonna fall apart yeah 
you know, you like biking, that's great. But if you bike, you know, 200 miles a day, you're probably going to fall apart. Yeah. You know, it just goes in that direction. So it goes on and it says it was their in, inability to govern this new phenomenon, meaning their genitalia, that led them to sew fig leaves together to make aprons, to conceal what were now to be called uh, prude, pruder in the Latin, which means to be ashamed. Um, Augustine believed that the guilt of the original transgression transmitted by the inherited lust of Adam and Eve's descendants still persisted in humanity. Right. And that this explained the perversity and independence of the sexual organs. I love the independence part. <laughs> Again, it sounds like some the monster with genitalia out of control. <laughs> I know. It's crazy. And and one of the main things, like as me and Bo are going over this and Bo's reading these quotes, it always challenges us. What hang-ups am I bringing into the Bible? Because we all have them, yeah. right? We all have issues in our heart, in our life. It may not be regarding the sexual issue. It may be when it comes to finance. It may be, you know, maybe you were raised as like a capitalistic kind of person and you were always brought up to believe in the free market and the beauties of it and things like that. And you come to certain texts of the Bible and it certainly justifies that. But you come to certain other texts of the Bible and it doesn't justify it. And you have to really question like what's being spoken of in the Bible and what's being talked about here and really challenging yourself. Does the Bible really teach what I want it to teach? Or is it teaching something maybe not different or opposed, but maybe something a little bit deeper and more nuanced? And maybe you're missing it because of your preconceived notions that you're bringing to the text. Yeah. So um, let me continue with this. Um, it says, okay, uh, the, uh, let's see. Lust and sex were integral to the doctrine of original sin, and every act of lust performed, or sex, every act of sex performed by humanity subsequent to the fall was necessary evil, just as every child born of it was born into sin. Though God had irradiated the first man and woman with a, with a blameless physical instinct designed to provide for continuation of the species, lust had converted it into something shameful. Hmm. So that's just saying that, you know, all kids are born with original sin. Therefore, the act itself of procreation is sinful and shameful. Right. Which is, again, it's such an interesting thing to say. Because when we use the phrase original sin, we don't mean the whole thing is bad. We mean a level of badness has been introduced to something that was originally good. In other words, there's a rottenness within the creation. And, uh, you know, Frank Turk puts it this way. I like it. He's like, you know, when it comes to rottenness or like rust or corrosion or something like that, the corrosion is not the original thing. The corrosion takes something good and turns it into something bad. So, for instance, if you have, uh, if you have, if you take all the, the way he puts it is this, if you take all the rust out of a car, 
you got a better car. You take all the car out of the rust, you have nothing, right? The rust needs something to latch onto. So if there's something wrong with our sexual appetite, you can't conclude that the appetite itself is bad. You have to conclude that there has to be something good there to which sin has latched onto, right? In other words, if you take all the lust out of the sex, you have better sex. If you take all the sex out of the lust, you have nothing, right? You have absolutely nothing. So it doesn't make any sense from their own perspective. You cannot have sex be itself something that's bad. It has to be something, sin has to latch onto something. It's a parasite. It's not self-sustaining. Yeah, it really is a hard sell, too, to think that you can have intimacy and not and have it the way they thought like Adam and Eve could before the, the fall where it was just kind of like oh this is what we do but there was no actual yeah, pleasure pleasure nothing good about it because yeah. you, know? um, you know your body part if you're going to have sexual intercourse that itself is pleasurable um, unless there was some kind of weird thing going on. <laughs> you know? No, absolutely. I just want to read like a, just a couple passages to, again, just say like, did these guys even read their Bibles? You know, I, I think about, you know, Jesus when he's talking to the Pharisees, these really smart guys, man, yeah. who probably could quote the whole Bible to you. You know, these are not intellectual dullards. These are not guys that are just uh, like stupid. So when Jesus asks him the question, have you not read? He's not saying like, man, you guys must have never read this. You know, he's, he's actually, he's using kind of a sarcastic tone to poke at them. In other words, I know you've read this, but why aren't you getting it? It's an accusation. And it's trying to show them that they have cognitive dissonance, meaning that they believe one thing in principle, but their behavior shows something totally different. And they don't even recognize the uh, the problem. So this is Proverbs chapter. Um, I'm sorry. Yeah, this is Proverbs chapter five, and let, let's start in verse eighteen. Let your fountain be blessed, and rejoice with the wife of your youth. Seems like marriage seems pretty good, right? So some might say, well, yeah, it could just be like marriage in general. Okay. Verse 19, as a loving deer and a graceful doe, let her breast satisfy you at all times and always be enraptured with her love. How could you read that and be like, sex is just, you know, it's like brushing your teeth. You know, like it's, it's not really supposed to be like good, you know, or it's supposed, there's nothing mentioned here about procreation. Nothing about having kids, nothing about, it's just a very sensual passage about literally enjoying your wife. And by the way, the very next verse says, for why should you, my son, be enraptured by an immoral woman and be embraced in the arms of seductress? In other words, he's saying there is a lust that's bad. What is it? Going after someone that you're not committed to. But he doesn't say the, the sexual desire is bad. He says you're just aiming it in the wrong direction. <laughs> He's like, it's a, it's a good weapon, but it's only as good as, as the direction it's pointing, you know? So you, you aim it at your spouse, man. Have enjoyment there. Don't aim at other places, right? That's the point that's being made. Mm. Uh, or I could just flip open to any yeah. random passage of Song of Solomon and, <laughs> and see that. <laughs> yeah. <totally>. So um, <laughs> this will continue with this reading. It says... Um, 
One result of this ingenious uh, piece of rationalization was an emphasis on the purity of Jesus of Nazareth, whose conception had, been, had not been tainted by any carnal contact, but it also implied that humanity's best hope of redemption lay in rejecting uh, sex and with it the burden of guilt inherited from Adam and Eve. Only the celibate could hope to achieve the state of grace <laughs> that had existed in the Garden of Eden. Now, this is an insane stretch <laughs> of logic. Uh, a couple things. You know, first of all, when it comes to the virgin birth, no, uh, no serious person reading the text would conclude that the reason why Jesus was pure was because Mary was a virgin. Uh, the whole purpose of the virgin birth was to, was to signify and to demonstrate that Jesus' birth was not of human origin, meaning that Jesus was not created through a union of Mary and Joseph. Jesus, when it says that Mary was impregnated by the Holy Spirit, it means that essentially nothing, no part of it was from the will of man. God entered his own creation and his creation, his, his incarnation did not need a human origin. He entered into it willingly and in a way that wasn't spurred on by human agency. But when you look at that, that event of Mary being a virgin, many people read into that you know, because they view sex as bad or, or pleasure as bad, they go, that's what made Jesus so awesome. You know, it's that she was a virgin. See, she never had sex. <laughs> and see, sex is bad. If she had sex, then Jesus wouldn't have been Jesus. And the obvious argument that you can make to that is, well, if that's the case, why aren't there more virgin births? Right. So if if God really enjoys the virgin birth, you know, if he's like the virgin birth is where it's at, you know, and if you want to have pure kids, do it this way. Isn't it possible for God to just do that well, to make why, it available? And why would he tell Adam and Eve to come together and become one? Right. And then you also I and mean, then that's why the Catholic Church has had to uh, say that Mary has perpetual virginity, even though when you go through the Bible, it's very clear that she wasn't a perpetual version. She was very clearly intimate with Joseph and had other children. But, um, you know, of whom were some of the leaders of the church, James and Jude? Are you saying, okay, well, James and Jude, you kind of suck because, you know, Mary had to have sex to have you. Um, or are you going to say, no, like, that's not why Jesus was pure. That was actually just a result of his origin, the fact that he had no beginning, and that's why he's entering in the creation the way he is. Uh, but the second point which I think is really interesting because this pastors that we're reading will actually seriously contest the second point, that Jesus's virginity is a symbol of his piety or religiosity. Now, the reason why Jesus was a virgin, the reason why he never had sex, was again, it had nothing to do with his religiosity. It had everything to do with his being, his character, his nature. Uh, Jesus is God, very God. And therefore, he wasn't sent here to have a normal human union. Jesus, however, will be married. He has a bride. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, we'll talk about this, the intimacy demonstrated in sex is a picture of the intimacy that Christ has with his bride. So 
there's a major failure if you're going to say like, well, Jesus's purity was a, a symbol of his unbelievable amounts of holiness. The problem with that is, is if that's true, why is it that Paul is now tainting Christ with pictures of intimacy with his bride? Uh, if sex is bad, that would be the last symbol or metaphor Paul would ever use to describe God being intimate with his bride. Because there's plenty of metaphors that Paul could have used. He could have been like, yeah, you know, Christ is Christ is in us. You know, there, there's a relationship between us and Christ. He could have used the uh, analogy of friends or parent and child. Uh, you could have used examples from nature, uh, maybe a kangaroo and, you know, having like a little roux in the pouch or peas in a pot or, you know, there are so many different metaphors that Paul could have used. Why is it that he's constantly mining this same metaphor of Christ in the church being like husband and wife and the intimacy therein, not just spiritual or, or life intimacy, but physical, literal intimacy, which is the exact metaphor he uses in 1 Corinthians 6. Why on earth would he be using this metaphor if it's so tainted, if it's so bad? I think a lot of people, though, feel that Jesus's purity is the direct result of Mary's virginity. Right. <laughs> they see that as tied together. Right. And the Catholic Church certainly has done a wonderful job of perpetuating that idea. Hmm. Um, and so when you do go into that route, you can see where in our culture why there's so many people with sexual hang-ups already. Right. Right? You can see them going, pleasure, there's pleasure that's bad. Yeah. And even even in marriage, there's a, like a, a shame that's attached to sexual pleasure. Yeah. And even Jesus, I know G, I love Jesus, and Jesus was pure because he was born of a virgin. And Mary's virginity, see that's what that's what resulted in Jesus's purity. And so, you know, that is important. Virginity is the best, and celibacy is the best. Yeah, um, you can see how this is rolling right into into people's lives. And notice that there is no actual biblical basis for it. I mean, you cannot. None of these people could quote any passage in the Bible that would make that point. Meaning that there's no passage in the Bible that ever even alludes to the idea that the purity of Christ was because of the virgin birth. Simplest thing on the planet for any of the biblical authors to do that. To be like, and the purity of Christ is known through his virgin birth. Like they could have done that. They could have said something to that effect. They never do. <laughs> Instead, they they definitely promote the idea that that Mary that or that Jesus doesn't come from Joseph right. because of the virginity of Mary. Right. So that's talked about. Right. But they never make a purity conclusion from the virgin birth. Uh, which is really interesting. So they have to argue entirely from silence to make a point that's incredibly foreign to the Bible and stands at odds with many direct passages in the Bible. Just think how much damage that has done yeah. over and, the years. And Satan, man, he, he laughs, dude, because he wins on both ends. He wins on the ascetic end. The, the people who are practicing this type of false piety, 
that they believe is righteous, which, by the way, Paul calls the doctrine of demons in 1 Timothy 4. So some people out there might be listening and be like, yeah, you know, like, going the ascetic route and looking at you're sex. You're more spiritual if you're celibate. You're still, like, you're still spiritual. You know, I mean, they may have been a little wrong, but is it is it really that bad? Paul calls them following the doctrine of demons. That's bad. Meaning if you're if you're believing that celibacy draws you closer to God. Right. That you are you are literally believing the doctrine of demons. He never says that, by the way, about licentiousness. He never says that there's a demonic origin to licentiousness. Um, why? Because there's a very clear, direct result of sensuousness that comes from our biology, right? There's a in other words, there's an instinctual basis for it. Whereas celibacy that kind of prideful arrogant legalistic mindset that's totally demonic in origin right? there's it's like no against the norm it's against the instinct so it's that's why it's worse and c.s lewis makes that point in his book mere christianity that all these other vices they're bad but they have some sort of an instinctual basis so they're less bad than the purely spiritual vices which would be, in his opinion, primarily arrogance and legalism. I think the damage that has happened is not just that doctrine of demons idea of going against the natural ways of human biology, meaning sex, and thinking sex is evil, Mm. and thinking that you're more spiritual if you don't marry. But it also has infiltrated marriages Right. Marriage upon marriage upon marriage upon marriage. Right. So many people that are married, they their sex lives are nil. Yeah. Um, they do not have good sex lives at all. Hmm. Many women don't think that they think if they have sex or enjoy pleasure, there's something inherently shameful, just as uh, St. Uh, Augustine taught. Right. And that's also so like. The other side of this, the reason why it's also bad on the flip side, there's a huge amount of sexual liberation talk throughout the church. What is that in reaction to? It's in reaction to this bad theology. So people are looking at the Bible, and now because temperance, this idea of sexual purity, is not taught. Does that make sense? It is not taught primarily in the church. All you're going to hear in the church is negative sentences about sex. You're not going to hear any positive. So in other words, even though in their minds the pastor is not teaching asceticism, he's not up there saying sex is bad, but whenever he brings up the topic of sex, it's completely mired in negative speech. Uh, He might say something to the effect of, yeah, sex is beautiful, it's from God, but, and then he goes into all these negative things and never qualifies why it's beautiful and why it's good. And what I think is sad, too, is when pastors go into passages that deal with sex, which is many, many passages, and just remember the whole Bible is, again, allegories of intimacy. Right. And, um, but they always have to kind of preface and I think that's an, another overhang of this Augustine theology. Right. There is something inherently shameful about what I'm going to talk about right now. Right. And I need to prep you all for it. Yeah, it's bad. Because sex is, the, is something that is really, really weird. Yeah. And it's odd. And, and it already hits. And that kind of attitude, I think, already is whatever you say after that, doesn't do anything. That's right. And so then you have 
So you have these people, these especially kids like me, growing up in the church with this incredibly negative view of sex. And whenever you hear a positive view of sex, it looks so good. You're like, oh, wow, like someone's finally talking positively about sex and it attracts you. That was like the main reason why I left the church at the age of 13 is because I didn't hear, I didn't hear from anyone around me this idea of a predominant message of sex is good, sex is positive. Let's talk about the positivity of sex. It was always framed in a negative uh, framework. And by the way, it wasn't just the church, right? Don't, don't get me wrong, it was not just the church. It was even my education, right? Going yeah. to public school, going to sex ed. Everything I heard about sex was just negative, 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 negative. And then finally, when anyone said something, which was unfortunately for me, the porn industry said something positive about sex, I was yeah. like, I was like, sweet. You, you had know? Ron Jeremy interview yeah. and he's like, dude, Ron Jeremy's like, man, dude, sex is awesome. Yeah. And you're like, wow. As a kid, you're like, dude, he, that's my idol. Yeah. We're finally, because it's like, you have to understand when you're teaching this message, because it goes so contrary to what someone knows in their heart, right? They're, they're growing up and they have this desire to have sex. And that's totally natural. And what you're telling them is that natural feeling that, you're, that you have right now, it's unnatural and it's bad. It needs to be suppressed and killed, right? That is the most unnatural thing on the planet. And so when that happens and that contradiction starts to grow in the mind and the heart of someone who's in the church, it's the easiest thing in the world for them to be ushered into licentiousness. Yeah, and how this affects, how it even, the ramifications of this, in my mind, even go further. So you have marriages that because of uh, people being so influenced by Augustine over the years, European culture moving into American culture, obviously, and Australian culture, and it goes on and on. Um, then you have marriages that aren't functioning well because there's always this perpetual stream of shame that's going through people when it comes to pleasure in their sex lives. So there is a ton of repression that goes on. There's a ton of conflict. There can't be any really resolve with it um, because it's kind of quite confusing and quite shameful. When it comes to shame, no one really wants to bring things up because it's shameful. Right. And, and so then you see where marriages in churches over hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds. And these, this education just is our default. It is the something that has happened for so long. Like you think evolution has been taught long in the schools or you think, you know, inclusion has been taught long in the schools. Try hundreds and hundreds and thousands. Hundreds, yeah, thousands, thousands of, of years, years yeah. of horrible. Yeah, Augustine taught in the 300s. I yeah. believe, yeah, starting in the 300s, early 400s. So that's literally a lot of influence. Yeah, over well over 1800 years of influence. Yeah, yeah, of these kind of ideas. And then you have, I mean, the reason why I say this is because now you know why there's things like LGBTQ, right. whatever. Right. If you've ever wondered why that it's like that today and why we have things like LGBTQ, it's Probably because of this. Right. It's a reaction. It's a reaction to a incredibly sex negative, sex shame theology right. that has permeated Christianity and hence has infused itself into first world countries. Right. 
And and here's the thing. This is why it's so bad. It's it's worse than Christians proselytizing in the Roman Empire. Because when you we get to Christians in the Roman Empire, where the Roman Empire was very licentious, right? There was a lot of licentiousness happening in the Roman Empire. For a Christian to start teaching the doctrine of temperance, hey, there's a such thing as self-control. Sexuality is enjoyed better through the lens of self-control. Teaching to someone that comes from a background that's just, this is how we've already lived, always lived, that's easy. When you're teaching to a culture that's literally in opposition to asceticism, meaning when you look at the, the sexual revolution of the 60s and the 70s, which is still carrying on in different facets and ways today, that was not just something that happened. It wasn't like a bunch of people were like, let's do this. It was reacting to this really bad theology and bad way of thinking. And people had a really good point where they were looking at it and they were looking at all the damage that this belief system did to people. And they were totally correct. They were talking about things like sexual repression. They were talking about things like sexual dysfunction because nobody could talk about sex anywhere. Like not just in the church, in the culture, period. When sexual dysfunction was happening in the home, nobody talked about it. It was just like the thing you just didn't talk about. So if there's this idea in people's brains of like, oh, you know, like molestation, um, forcing, uh, even within marriage, forced sexuality, things like that, abuse, sexual abuse, incest. If you think those things just didn't happen in the 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, you are incredibly naive. They happened. Nobody talked about them, though. It was so shaming that if these things happened, families rushed to cover it up. Why do you think we have the Me Too movement, right? Uh, you know, a lot of Christians, we struggle with that movement. We're like, man, this is given just this, this idea of hardcore feminism. It's, got a, it's a reaction to this incredibly shaming language that we've used throughout the culture to suppress voices of people who have experienced the negative repercussions of sexual abuse. And that has effects. <laughs> you have to realize that it has effects. And it's much harder to fight against something that has grown as an, as an opposition than a fight against something that's standing on its own. Um, because whenever we talk about it, now if I'm gonna talk about temperance with the world, they're going to hear asceticism, even though that's not what I'm talking about. And they're gonna hear all the negative things associated with asceticism. And so it's really, really difficult. And so, I, again, Satan wins on both ends. The licentious, he wins with the licentious world because he's taken away the voice of Christians to be able to communicate with the world on this topic. But then he's also winning on the churches that are still into the ascetic uh, worldview because they can't talk about sex either. So regardless, Satan has this amazing monopoly on sex that now exists within our culture. And it's really sad. And if we want to have any positive growth, we have to learn how to talk about sex in the context of temperance. We have to be willing to talk about it. You can't shrink back and say like, well, let's just not talk about it because the world's gone crazy because that brings us back to asceticism. You have to learn how to talk about it in an appropriate way. So I'll end with this. Augustine had set out to validate the church father's revulsion against sex and had succeeded in providing a justification that satisfied both faith and intellect. The body was no more than a flawed vessel for the mind and spirit, and it was now up to the church to propagate Christian morality in these terms. Augustine's meditations, as a result, 
were to have incalculable effect on the lives of future generations, not always in the ways that could be neatly particularized, but in more subtle matters of stress and emphasis. What was clear right from the start, however, was that if it was sinful to find enjoyment in sex, then the great majority of ordinary people were sinners. Right. <laughs> you know, which is great, right? Yeah. So, uh, you know, St. Augustine, thoughts on, you know, the fall really impacted uh, our lives, right? Necessary evil. Sex is a necessary evil hmm. of Adam and Eve after the fall. Sex must have been without pleasure, uh, some kind of no eros before the fall. Right. Uh, um, that uh, genitalia became uncontrollable. Um, that uh, virginity equals purity, um, moral purity. And Jesus was morally pure through the virgin birth. I could see that that was probably one of the biggies. You know, look at Jesus. Mm. You know, he came from a virgin. He was pure. <gasps> you know, that right there, right there cuts out sex, Right. you know, from purity. So um, anyway, huge ramifications. That'll be our part one. We didn't get too far into 1 Corinthians, but we really laid some foundation. Yeah. You yeah. know, for sure. And it was great to go through some of the uh, Ray Tannehill book on uh, Augustine, this little section. So we'll catch you guys next time. Check out runninglight.org to begin our two video series, Take Flight and Love or Lust. You can also send us questions on Twitter at Running Light or on our runninglight.org podcast page. Like us on Facebook at Running Light Ministries, Psalm 36.8. They are abundantly satisfied with the fullness of your house, and you give them drink from the river of your pleasures.